Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. So last month, I had the chance to interview Sadiqa Johnson in person at the Orange County Library for her latest novel, The House of Eve. And she drew such a crowd that at the last minute, they had to move the event location to fit everyone in. And we had such a great time together, and I knew we weren't done talking. So I asked her to to join me on the show as well. And along with loving the book, I love Sadiqa's writing journey and her publication story. And I'm guessing you're going to draw a lot of inspiration from it, too. The House of Eve hit the New York Times bestseller list almost from the moment it came out. It was also an an immediate Reese Witherspoon book club pick. Sadiqa is the author of four previous novels, including Yellow Wife, which was her first foray into historical fiction. It came out in 2021 and garnered all kinds of praise. In addition to chatting about the House of Eve and Sadiqa's unique publication story, we'll talk about research, revision, how to talk to your characters, how to listen to your characters, writing contemporary versus historical fiction, and so much more. Before I bring her on, April is the one-year anniversary of our Patreon page. In order to celebrate, we're offering some special perks and gifts just for the month. If you sign up in April at the $10 or above level and you write to me with your address, I will send you a surprise book in the mail and a Writers on Writing bookmark. If you've been a patron at that level or above, you can also write to me and I will also send you a book. We have some other fun things planned for patrons. Barbara and I are talking about doing an anniversary show together to talk about some of our favorite interviews over the years. I've planned a bonus interview with an author for patrons only. Some great stuff. So if you've been on the fence about joining, April is your month. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. We appreciate you and we appreciate your support. On with the show. Sadiqa, welcome. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. Oh, it's so great to talk to you again. This is a treat. I rarely get two bites at the apple, so this is really fun. So I always love hearing from writers about when and how they knew they were a writer, if they came out of the womb, the pen in their hand, or if they Mm -hmm. discovered it along the way. So I just love to start there with, you know, sort of your journey into becoming a writer. Well, I was always a lover of books. I will say that. So I had to pass the local library every day going to my elementary school. And I went to Catholic school, so it was K through eighth. And so we we had to pass the library. And that was my hangout. Every day after school, I would hang out at the library, check out books. The librarians knew me. When summertime rolled around, I would actually get dressed up on Mondays and I would walk to the library. I would take seven books. I would check seven books out. I would bring them home. I would read a book a day and I would do the same thing the next Monday. So I just loved being in the library, but I didn't know that I was a writer's you know, I didn't know I was a writer. I, my dream as a kid was to become an actress. I wanted to be on television. And so I took a lot of acting classes. Um, When I decided to go to college, 
I was at a high school for engineering and scientists. My that was my mm. my high school, and I was the only person who graduated who was going to college for theater arts. I was a theater arts major <laughs> in college, <laughs> so I was like, you know, the the circle and the square peg. Uh, I, I I didn't really always fit, but when I got to college um, as a theater major, you know, we had to write plays and scenes and skits and that sort of thing. And and then I found myself, you know, I was in New York City, I found myself sort of on the poetry circuit. And so my friends and I, we would kind of get dressed up with like big African headdress dresses on our heads or cute little hats or just something to make us look like kind of cool. And we would go and recite poetry. And so I thought, wow, this is a combination of theater and writing. And it just continued to sort of snowball from there. My first job out of college was a job at in publishing. I worked for Scholastic Books. And while I was there and I was surrounded by these children's books, I got the idea, I should probably give this a crack. I think I could write a story. And that was sort of the beginning journey of writing for me. Scholastic Books. Who didn't love scholastic books the day that the books arrive in your classrooms? That's that's one of those pleasures that I know only, you know, like Gen X and boomers probably remember. <laughs> mm-hmm. I assume those are gone now, but oh my God. Yeah, you you guys were a, a highlight, let's just say, of my of my childhood. Great. Yeah. And I can see so many of these seeds of your theatrical we can get into this a little later, but I can see so many of these theatrical acting seeds in your fiction. I can see where a lot of the cinematic feel of these novels comes from. So that's really interesting. Let's talk about that initial great story that you have into your publishing career, because I just love the tenacity and the resilience that it took for you to find your way onto the bookshelves. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, when I decided, okay, so I'm going to give this writing thing a try. I was I was in my early 20s. And, you know, as I said, I was working in publishing. So I thought, well, this should be pretty easy. Like I know editors, I know agents, I'm I'm in publicity, like I'm surrounded by people who are in this business. So I'm just going to give this a crack. Well, my first novel never saw the light of day. um, But that helped me to sort of getting to my second novel. And as I was working on my second, second, well, it really is my first novel published, but the second one I tried, loving a carry-on bag, I was commuting back and forth from New Jersey to New York. And I would write every morning on the train. And then when I got to my office, at this point, I had left Scholastic and I went to GP Putnam Sons. And I would close my door every day at four o'clock and pretend like I was working on something for work, but I was actually typing in everything that I had handwritten on the train that the morning going into work. And then I would have to rush to the printer because this was the nineties. And this was back when we had those ginormous shared printers between, you know, 17 different people. So I have to run and grab my novel off the printer. So no one knew what I was working on. And then on my way home, I would edit on the page what I had written for the day. And that was the beginning of my writing schedule. It was on the train and in my office. And I continued to do this for a while until until I had a book, right? And it it was an early draft, but it was enough for me to feel like, okay, I have something here. And I'd spend a lot of time with really major authors, particularly when I worked at Putnam, because we had a lot of New York Times bestsellers like Amy Tan, Nevada Barr, Catherine Coulter, 
Bishop T.D. Jakes. And I would be in the back of these town cars with them going to like Good Morning America or the Today Show. And I would pick their brains. And authors love to help each other. They were always so gracious. You know, what's your writing schedule like? Where do you get your ideas? How did you get published? How did you get an agent? And so I was sort of storing all this information so that when it was my turn, I would know what to do. Well, I got married and my husband and I were expecting our first child. And so I said to him, I said, hey, you know, I've been working on this novel for a couple of years. I I think I have something. So I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to take care of our son and I'm going to get this novel published and I will be a New York Times bestseller, you know, in in no time. And his reaction was, (laughs) you're going to quit your job? And I was like, yeah, 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 I'm gonna quit my job. And so fast forward, I quit my job and had my son, had finished what I thought was finished my novel. I took my novel to a bunch of agents and I got, I don't know, 15, 20 rejections from different agents around the country. And I would save the rejection letters. I printed them all off and I would highlight whatever the nice thing that they said. Because this was the time when I guess agents would give you a few words of encouragement when they told you no. So I would highlight those few words of encouragement and I would paste it on the wall behind my desk. And that was to serve as motivation to keep going. Like they thought I had something, but I was just not right for them. I finally was able to get an agent and she was someone who I had known when I was working as a publicist. And She took my novel, Loving a Carry-On Bag, out to market for me. And just to show you how long this whole process took, when I quit my job, I had my son. By the time my novel was with an agent and she was taking it out to market, I had three kids. So (laughs) (laughs) there are writers out there, please know (laughs) that it takes a minute. Don't worry, it's coming. So I remember this because she took my my book to market. And I think it was like nine or 10 editors had already told me no. And we were down to the very last editor. And she called me on a Friday night and she said, Sadiqa, I have um, an editor at Touchstone Books that's interested in purchasing your novel. She needs to clear it with her boss. She's going to do it over the weekend and I'll give you a call back on Monday and let you know how it's going. And so all weekend, you know, I'm like, God, please, just please, just this anybody, somebody, one, this one person, please let her want to purchase my book. And I remember the kids and I were dancing in the kitchen all, you know, mommy's about to have a book deal. You know, we're having all this wonderful moments over our pizza. And then on Monday, she called and she's like, Sadiqa, I am so sorry. She said, the editor was unable to purchase your book. She was like, we're out of, we're sort of out of people at this point. She was like, I think it's best that we take six months off and let's reconvene and then give it another try. But as I mentioned, by now I have been tugging this book around for, you know, a a good amount of years and I'm distraught. Like I've put everything into it and I thought that this was my big break. And I remember shopping my kids in like those double jogging strollers. I had one of those and running through my neighborhood. And 
I stopped at this little lake not too far from my house. And I remember sort of like crying for a vision, like, God, what is it? Like, what am I supposed to be doing? I thought this was the path. Why is this not working out? And my husband, to cheer me up, because I was beyond depressed at this point, um, decided that we were going to go into New York City and have a good dinner. And over dinner, he said, so what is it about being, you know, getting a publishing deal? What is it that you need? And I said, well, you only have one chance to debut, like, and, and it needs to be good. So I need an editor. And he said, why don't we just hire an editor? Hmm. And it was, it was almost like, you know, the universe was waiting for me to sort of say yes to this alternative way of publishing, which was not my dream, but it was another way to get to where I wanted to get because everything that I needed sort of just opened up. And, you know, I was able to get a small distribution deal. I found an editor who later becomes my agent. She and I have been together since the beginning. We've done every single book together. Mm. I, you know, I became the sales manager and I would call up the local bookstores and pretend like I was someone else. So I would use my maiden name and (laughs) and I would say, yes, I have this great book from 12th Street Press. That was the name of our little small publishing company. It's called Love in a Carry-On Bag. Could we send you five copies? Don't worry about, you know, sending any money until after you sell the book. Because at this point, I'm just trying to get my book in people's hands. I'm just trying to get people to know who I am, you know? We'll worry about the money later, but can I send you, you know, five or six copies? And we literally went up and down the East Coast. It was summer. Um, it was hot. The East Coast is, is we have that thing called humidity. So I'm <laughs> literally outside at, you know, every book festival, sweating my makeup off, standing on one foot, begging people to buy my book. And it worked because Love in a Carry-On Bag won the Phyllis Wheatley Award, and my editor becomes my agent, and she says, I think we can take this next book to the big publishing houses. Why don't we give it another try? Such a good story. So those first three books that you wrote were contemporary, sort of domestic contemporary fiction, and then with The Yellow Wife, you you delved into historical fiction for the first time. And I'm wondering if you approach those two genres differently from a writing standpoint. I assume the research is really very different, but but are there tell me a little bit about working in those two genres and kind of your your approach to them, differing approaches to them. I had no intention of switching from contemporary fiction to historical fiction. I was very content and happy about writing about me and, you know, what I was going through and things that I was trying to work out, people that I knew, circumstances that I saw myself in. And so contemporary fiction was like therapy for me in all different ways, which I could add fiction to it to make it even better. But it was was really me working out things that I wanted to work out. And so I really loved working uh, in contemporary fiction. And so I, you know, I'm I'm still almost baffled to this day that I write historical fiction because it was like not in the cards for me. It was not anything I intended. I remember we were living in Springfield, New Jersey, and I was standing in my kitchen and I heard a voice that said, move. And it was like, move out of the city, like move, move, like out of the state. 
And this was February of 2015. And somehow everything clicked into place. My husband got on board, the kids got on board and we moved from New Jersey to Virginia in less than six months. I think we were all moved in by June of 2015. Mm -hmm. And then it was nine months later that I was on the Richmond slave trail and I discovered the story of Mary Lumpkin, which was the inspiration for Yellow Wife. And it was this calling, it felt very strong. Like as I was on the trail, I felt everything in my body saying, Sadiqwe, you need to be paying attention. And it was like the ancestors were waiting for me. Like the ancestors had called me home so that I could tell their story. And I was like, wait, what? Like, why me? All these writers who live in Virginia or live anywhere, like, why am I being called to tell the story? And I was terrified, but I knew that it was a calling because the, the story wouldn't leave me alone. The characters and, you know, for writers, we have to like tune into our gut. We have to tune into that sixth sense. And when there's something that's not leaving you alone, following you around, it was like the ancestors got in the car with me. And all I could think about was like Mary Lumpkins and the Lumpkins jail and Googling and your curiosity. It was my curiosity to know more about this woman and this time period that sort of was the driving force of writing that novel. But I remember when I was starting, I was like, okay, I thought there was like a special skill set that you needed to have to write historical fiction. I was like, surely it's not like writing contemporary fiction. Like you probably need to take a class or, you know, you need a degree or something in like history to be able to do this. And so it like took me a while to find my footing, but this is one of the things that I remembered. There was a book by um, Diane McKinney Whetstone called Lazarado. And I remember, I love all of her books. She's, I'm from Philadelphia and she's also from Philadelphia and she writes historical fiction. And the book took place in the 1800s. It starts right after Abraham Lincoln died. And I remember as I was reading the story, I was swept up in it and I kept thinking, well, what makes this historical fiction versus what I do? And I realized it was the details. It was the clothing, it was the streets, it was the car, it was the music, it was the way people spoke. That was the difference. And I thought, well, if I could read enough of these types of books and get a sense of like what is happening in the 1850s, what makes my, what will transport my reader so they believe me when I say we're at a plantation in Charles City in 1850, what are those details that I need? And so that I would say would be the difference between writing, you know, contemporary fiction where, you know, my characters live in New Jersey and they have these little kids on the playground versus a plantation in 1850 and the loom house and, you know, scrubbing shoes with shoe polish that you make out of you know, whatever you have on hand. So it was finding those little details that changed it from contemporary fiction to historical fiction. And I have to say, you're so wonderful with all those details. I think you said in an interview that The Yellow Wife, somebody said was the smelliest book they'd ever read because it <laughs> yes. had all these gray smells. But yes, it's so sensory rich, your, your writing. And I wonder if it kind of became more sensory rich with the historical fiction than, I mean, because if you're in a contemporary setting, maybe you assume the the reader's are with you. They know what, you know, today's world looks and smells and what people are wearing. So you don't have to spend that time 
but these novels are really so operating on all five senses all the time. I think that is a skill that I have developed. I don't know that I was, you know, I don't go back and read my books because they will make me cringe. But I, I feel like Yellow Wife brought the senses out more so than my other novels. And now is definitely a something that I'm very, very conscious of. I could be wrong. Now, someone could say, I just finished reading Second House from the Corner and I thought it was, you know, I could feel all my senses working. Maybe. I really don't remember, but it feels like I, as the writer, was more in tuned to the senses when I was writing Yellow Wife. And now it's something that's definitely really important to me. And I'm I'm hyper aware of it as I'm writing. And I remember somebody in our earlier conversation at the library talking about the fashion in House of Eve, how, you know, we just felt um, steeped in in what people were wearing, which was so true. I'm wondering, so do you have in your office like pictures of the House of Eve, pictures of some of these buildings or pictures of the fashions these women were wearing or, or any of those visual cues to help you out? Or do you just kind of store this in your memory bank? Yeah, no, visual cues. Um, that's something else that came with that with uh, Yellow Wife. As a historical fiction writer, I guess these were things I did not need when I was writing contemporary fiction. But when I was writing Yellow Wife, I had this need to have a picture wall so that I could see like what the plantation looked like. And I had a idea of like what Phoebe would wear versus what her mom would wear. And and, you know, what the enslaved people look like as they were being transported, you know, from one place to the other. And so that was sort of the beginning of me needing to be able to see something visually. So when I got into the House of Eve, I thought, OK, I need to do that again. So I need to know what Ruby looks like and what Ruby's wearing. And, you know, there's a sorority aspect to the story. And so I found pictures of early sororities in the 40s and the 50s and how they posed and, you know, what they look like. And so I needed pictures of that. And I found pictures of girls uh, in Ebony magazine in the 50s and, you know, their shirtwaist dresses and what the home looked like and what even a, a baby crib looked like, which is very different than it looks today. So I was able to find some of those pictures and things that really stick out to me. I'll paste them up on the wall so that I have a constant reminder as I'm working. Yes. Well, this is a good time to make sure we introduce House of Eve if people haven't picked it up yet. So maybe we set the stage for the book and that will set us up to answer a couple more questions about uh, about the writing process of that. But take us into the House of Eve and into Ruby and Eleanor's life and, and set us up a little bit. So the House of Eve is the story of uh, Ruby. She is a 15-year-old girl. She lives in North Philadelphia. When she came to me, the things that I knew about her was that she was 15, she was smart, she had a body shaped like a Coca-Cola bottle. So when she walked through the streets of North Philadelphia, grown men catcalled her. So she was in sexual danger. And she had a mother who wished she had never been born. And as Ruby moves through the story, we see her as a young, ambitious girl. She is hoping to be the first in her family to go to college and to actually make something out of her life and not do day's work and houseworks like the, the women who, who've come before her. She has an opportunity uh, for a full scholarship. She's in a program called We Rise. 
And only a few of those students go on and they receive a scholarship to go to college. And so Ruby is doing everything in her power to set herself up to be one of those students. Well, she, a chance meeting between her and her landlord's son, a boy named Shimmy, he is white and Jewish. They have a thing for each other. And it's not something that that is meant to be, but it happens. And it threatens to upend everything that Ruby has fought for up until this point. And meanwhile, the story is told between two characters. So we have Ruby and Eleanor, and I tell it every other chapter. So Eleanor is a girl from Ohio, and she moves to Washington, D.C. with uh, secrets and ambition. And she falls in love with William Pride, who comes from one of the most wealthy African-American families in the city of Washington, D.C. But they don't just let anyone into their fold. They're very specific. They, you need to be able to trace your, you know, your lineage, your education, and your money back a few generations. And Eleanor does not have any of the privilege that they would think a woman coming into their family would have. And so these two couples go through an awful lot. These two women have to overcome insurmountable challenges to get to where they need to be. And at the heart of the story, there's this thing that pulls them two together. <laughs> I don't know if we talked about this last time, but Ruby is told from first person and Eleanor is told from third person. And I love books that switch back and forth with multiple points of view. I just think that, you know, that sort of back and forth conversation between different classes and different lifestyles and then watching them careen together at the end is is really fun but tell me a little bit about the the voice choice as i'm calling yeah. it the first first versus third person well ruby was the first character that came to me and so i actually thought it was only going to be her story and she came she was up close she was personal she was in my face I knew that her story was one that readers would want to sort of move through the story as if you were Ruby. Like that would be the best way for you to like enjoy it. And so I knew she was speaking to me in first person. Well, Eleanor sort of came a little bit later. And I remember just sitting in my office and I could feel this presence. It was defiant. It was rageful. It was it was angry, it was desperate. And it was, it was like, I need your help. I need to have a baby. And I remember thinking, whoa, where did you come from? And, you know, it was, it was strong, but it was distant. And because she was a little bit distant, I thought I needed to back up a little bit and sort of view Eleanor from third person. And I had just, read uh, The Alice Network by Kate Quinn. And she had written one in first and one in third. And I really enjoyed that. So I thought, well, let me just give this a try and see what happens. And when it got to my agent, they thought, said, you know, why, why did you do that? And, you know, I explained it. And I'm like, do you want me to change it? Because I do listen to my professionals. And they were like, no, 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 just leave it. We'll see what happens. And then it got to my editor and she said, well, why did you do that? And, you know, I explained it again. And I said, well, do you want me to change it? And she was like, no, let's just, we'll, we'll just see how it goes. And so it stuck. But that was why I made that choice. 
You know, what's interesting about it, because the book is so much about class, it's about all the isms, right? Racism and classism and, and all, you know, and colorism. Americanism, colorism mm-hmm. and um, alcoholism, all the yes, yes, all the isms, <laughs> yes, addictionism. And I, I think that first person choice gave us sort of because Eleanor is just at a little bit of a remove, right? She's in an, an elevated class. And so that little bit of distance that we get in third person, as opposed to being in the body of Ruby, and we won't give anything away, but it it really becomes very important to be kind of in Ruby's body. And as you say, it's this body that's subject to, you know, sexual exploitation and sexual violence. And so being inside of that is a very different experience than Eleanor, who's just a little bit out of touch with her own body and a little bit disconnected from her class. And so I thought that first person, third person worked really well, both literarily, if that's a word, Mm. and like psychologically for who these women were and our relationship to them over time. And so, yeah, I I just thought it was a really nice choice. And, you know, as, as your editor and agent may have pointed out, an unusual choice that really served the novel really well. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think it's it's good to point out to writers that there are, you know, there are rules and then there are ways to break rules that serve the the narrative. And, and those are really fun to play with. I thought that was a great example. Yeah. Um, can I can I just say something about rules really quickly? Because you just please. made me think of something. So when I'm when I'm writing, my agent was an editor first. So she's always sort of she's my first eyes. And she'll catch things like information dumps. She'll, she'll like, if I'm trying to like get a bunch of history in there or, or say something really quickly, but I don't really want to go through the motions of, you know, weaving it into dialogue, she'll kind of catch it and she'll flag it for me. Something that she always flags is when I overdo backstory. And I think that's really important for writers to know. One of the things that I teach my students is try to get into the story for a while before you start flashing back. Like, because oftentimes the readers are so caught up in the front story that when you flash back too quickly and for too long, you sort of lose them. So she'll she'll call me on that, right? She'll call me on that so that I'm pushing forward. But then, so rules are meant to be broken, right? I am currently listening to Lessons in Chemistry. And I want to tell you, the book starts off in the present and like, I don't know, a third of the book is a, is, is the past, like a flashback. <laughs> and this book has been on the New York Times bestsellers list for like, I don't know, 46 weeks or something. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, all this time, my agent has been pushing me to like, not overdo flashbacks and, and go forward. And now, you know, at least a third of the beginning of this book is a flashback and it's done fantastically well. So I will say, definitely listen to your professionals. But also, if in your gut, you feel like this is the best way to tell the story, then you should tell it that way. We'll be back with more from Sadiqa Johnson and the House of Eve in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another reminder to check out our Patreon page, April is our one-year anniversary, and we've got some special things in store. If you're liking the show, if you've learned any tips that may have inched you closer to publication, or if you just like these behind-the-scenes discussions of how books get made, April is a great time to support the show. 
By becoming a backer for 10 bucks a month or more, you'll get a book along with our usual weekly writing tips and prompts and some other goodies. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Sadiqa Johnson talking about the House of Eve. I'm so glad you brought up this issue of backstory because I do think that's such a often conundrum for writers about where to put it in, how to weave it in, how long you spend back there and when you have to get back to the present. And I always thought of backstory as like a clothesline where you have, you know, you're going along the clothesline and then something triggers something where you, you know, you can drop down into, into the backstory, like a memory triggers it or an event somehow kind of triggers it. And then I'm like, how long can you stay back there? Two pages, five pages, we're going to lose the forward momentum. Does she have advice about that? Or do you have advice about that? I, I know the, I mean, we're talking about breaking rules. So <laughs> yeah, now. I had this thing like in my first three novels where, you know, I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan. So if anybody follows football, the Eagles have this thing called the Philly special which they run when they get sort of down down in the, the uh, red zone. And so anyway, so my agent will sort of call it like the Sadiqa special. So I would, <laughs> do, I would do a big flashback at the beginning of part two. So I would spend the beginning, you know, I would spend all of part one sort of trying to get the story moving. And then maybe little small, like you said, like that clothespin thing where you're like, ooh, that little trigger of a memory. And I give you a little bit, but I wouldn't stay there too long but I would keep pushing the story forward. So little teeny mini flashbacks. But then when I got to part two, part two would start with all that information that you were waiting to hear, that that thing that I've been alluding to. And so you get that full backstory, like that first chapter in part two. And then you're like, oh my gosh, okay. And now you're ready to keep going. So that was what I was doing when I was doing contemporary fiction. But now with historical fiction, that has not quite been has not been the case. And so I find myself, instead of doing like those large, really long, long flashbacks is more like what you said with the clothespin, sort of dropping into a memory, sort of getting in there, telling the story as quickly as I can and getting out and getting back to moving the story forward, because that's really what the readers want. They want to keep the story moving forward. I guess sort of a related issue is there is a big cast. I didn't count them up, but it's a pretty big cast of, I guess, what you would call minor characters. I mean, they all serve great roles, but there's the mothers of these girls and their families. There are other girls in the House of Eve that we, you know, I don't know how much we want to give away about the House of Eve when they arrive there, but there's, you know, there's a good cast of characters. And I'm always at risk of side characters hijacking the story because they're often so interesting. I mean, there's there's a character in here named Aunt Marie, who's just mm-hmm. this larger than life, amazing theatrical character that I was like, man, if I was writing about her, you know, she'd have her own novel, you know, and I forget <laughs> what I was doing. So, I mean, again, talking about rules and, and breaking them, tell me a little bit about minor characters and managing them and making sure that they that they're serving the story and they're they're fully fleshed out, but they don't take over the story. Does that make sense? Yeah, no. I'm and I'm thinking as you're asking the question, like how I do that, and I I, I don't have a good answer for you. I feel like it's sort of a, one of those natural things that I do without having to put a lot of effort in. Like I'm very clear 
going into the story, I do outline. So I'm very clear going into my story who my main characters are, right? So I know it's Eleanor. I know it's Ruby are my two main characters. And so I know who their supporting cast is. And so I'm I'm always trying to make sure that the story is moving quickly, I would say, is, is one of my first things. I, I, I hate reading a book where it's dragging. So if I don't want to read it, I don't want to write it because I have to read my own writing over and over and over and over again. So making sure that it's not dragging and it's moving forward. But the management of the secondary characters sort of, I feel like it happens kind of naturally. Like they have their place and I haven't, I haven't experienced them sort of stepping out of place too much. That hasn't been my experience. They sort of they sort of know what their their roles are and their jobs are. Um, they have their own arcs in some cases, but they don't interfere with me telling the larger story. Well, actually, I think your answer is exactly right. Is you have your eye on the story and not the and maybe I mean I'm sure you have your eye on the characters too, but you're very clear eyed about who the main driving forces of the characters are, what they're trying to accomplish. Tell me a little bit more about that outline and when you start working on it, how malleable it is, kind of what it looks like, how detailed it is. Can you tell me a little bit about that process? Yeah. When I first get an idea, because I'm sort of there now with this new book in my head, you know, I I actually start with, I'll get the idea, but then I, I research a little bit, particularly for the historical fiction, because the idea, the plot points, all of that for me comes out of the research. So I'm researching a little bit and I'm trying to figure out like who my cast of characters are, who my mate, like how, who, who's going to tell this story. And once I sort of have a handle on it, I'll make an appointment with my agent and we sort of have like an information dump for like a, a, an hour or so where I'm like throwing up all over the place. And I'm just telling her every single thing that I found, what I think I want to do, how I want to develop the plot, where I think I'm going with the story. And then she'll give me feedback on that conversation. And then she'll suggest that I I write a synopsis, which will sort of sum up what I'm trying to say. And sometimes that's like three pages, five. And I haven't done that this time, actually. It's probably I'm having a hard time. It's three (laughs) pages, five pages, seven pages. For Yellow Wife, I think the the final synopsis was 12 pages. Mm. So the synopsis is sort of like the beginning, middle, and the end of of what I think is going to happen in the story. And if I go back and look at Yellow Wife synopsis, did some of the things happen in the novel? Yes. Did everything happen in the novel? Absolutely not. I look at the synopsis as just a roadmap, right? So you know how to get from Philadelphia to Miami, but you also know, you know, you stay on 95, but there are side roads that you can take, the scenic route, that sort of thing. So my synopsis is sort of like my 95 map, but I'm going to, when I sit down to write it, sometimes veer off of 95 and take the scenic route, but I'll, I'll make my way back on 95. And those are going to be my, my plot points along the way. And then the outline of it is never like the full book. Like the synopsis is sort of like my holding thing. And then I'll look at part one of my synopsis and say, well, let me break it down into chapters. What has to happen in chapter one, two, three, four, like that? What are my major plot points? Where do they happen? And that sort of gives me like a place to go on a daily basis so that I'm not so overwhelmed. And then once I finish part one, I'll look at part two synopsis and figure out, okay, how do I break this down into chapters? 
what needs to happen in chapter 15, 16, 17? You know, what are, what's the major plot points? And then I'll, I'll scratch that out and then I'll do the same thing for, for part three. And are you revising as you are writing or do you get make yourself push through a whole first draft and then go back and revise afterwards? I try and push through a whole first draft. Now, when I sit down on Monday, I'll go back and read what I wrote on Friday just to bring me back into the story. And if I have something I need to add, I'm not editing, but if I, you know, I'm just putting a little more in or maybe I might take something out, but I'm not spending like major editing time with it. I'm sort of reviewing and, oh yeah, I got that right. Or I forgot to say this. Maybe I should say that. Mm, This doesn't make sense. And then I'm quickly moving on to whatever my agenda was for today um, so that I can keep moving the story forward. Now, with that said, my first draft is not going to be complete. It's going to be pretty messy. It's also going to be in some places, I may say in chapter four, I know that Ruby and Aunt Marie, and I'm totally making this up, so I'm not ruining the story. I know Ruby and Aunt Marie are going um, to meet uh, Mrs. Shapiro for the first time. That might be it. I might not have the scene, but that's a placeholder now because I know in chapter five, I really need to read write about when Ruby goes to school. And Mm. so I may come back to it, but I know I'm, I'm writing it like in order, but I may not know all the details. So I'm holding the space for it. And then I just sort of keep going. Let's dive into the research a little bit, because I know this book had to be heavily researched. There's a couple of characters in here who I know are based on real life. And and one of them, I know you didn't know. So you had to research her. And, you know, the House of Eve is a place. Uh, I don't know if you went to visit it, but tell me a little bit about Yeah. At what point you you do all the research? It sounds like some is done at the front end and then some is done as you go along, but kind of knowing when to stop. And when you, when you, when you have enough, because I can just go down research rabbit holes for forever. Research is so much fun. Learning so much fun. And it's so much easier to research than it is to write. So sometimes I get caught up, but um, as I was researching, the House of Eve, I did make a trip to Washington, D.C. because one of the homes that, one of the maternity homes that came up in my research was the Florence Crittenden home. And it was in Northwest D.C. And I thought, oh, well, I'm only two hours from there. We go to D.C. often. I needed to see what the building looks like. And the building is now a school, is something completely different. But just walking and t- putting my hand on the wall and taking pictures, it sort of made it real for me. It, it, I don't know, being in a space, it opens my imagination a bit. And I also feel like I'm connecting with like the spirits or the ancestors or the people who actually went through it. And they're sort of like, oh, you're here to tell my story. Okay. Open up your mind. Cause I'm going to drop this in there. And so that's what it sort of feels like for me. And so I did go visit the home, the outside of it, uh, and took pictures of that. And then just sort of walk the streets of D.C. I remember a lot of the book takes, not a lot, but a good portion of Eleanor's outside life is on U Street and on Howard University's campus. And so I did walk, you know, walk those streets. And when I was working on certain parts of Philadelphia, I would call my mom or my dad and say, hey, what do you remember about this street? What what memories do you have about, you know, your childhood? What apartment did you live in? And I would use their memories to sort of sketch those scenes. And I also, for the first time, use Google Maps. Someone suggested that. But when I was writing about North Philadelphia and I couldn't decide, like, 
where the park was or what street was it a one way you know we have a lot of one-way streets in philadelphia and so i would just go to google maps and then i would have to think okay but 50 years ago mm-hmm. it wouldn't have looked exactly like this so how could i use this but then peel back a, you know 50 years or so 70 years actually right. um <laughs> 70 years so yeah so it was it, it was a mix of all of those things i think that helped and I get this feeling when I'm researching that big, that big upfront research, like, okay, you, you have enough to get started. Like I, I get a feeling that says, okay, Sadiqa, all right, you have enough to get started and it's okay. You're going to come back and look for some more, but you have enough to get started. So go ahead and start and then come back. And so like when I was like just writing the fashion, as you mentioned, so I may not, I don't have the fashion in my outline. So when I'm writing that chapter and I'm trying to figure out you know, what Ruby has on, you know, a sloppy Joe sweater and a, you know, a skirt or bobby socks or whatever. I I need to stop at that point. And then I'll find out like, what did teenagers wear in 1949 when they were going grocery shopping versus when they went to church? And then that's how I'll, I'll fold in the fashion. Right. And there's a wonderful real life character from Howard in here who I really love this archivist research assistant in the library who who was great it was so funny I heard you in an interview talk about sort of imposter syndrome of writing about Howard having not gone to Howard which I think is so (laughs) funny because we have so many conversations on the show about authority and who and appropriation and who has the right to write about what. And I was like, oh my gosh, if we can't write about colleges we didn't go to, we're in big big trouble. I was really nervous because one, I didn't, not only did I not go to Howard and I'm talking an awful lot, like I'm an expert um, about Howard University. I did not go to HBCU. I went to Marymount Manhattan College in New York City, right? And so two schools could not be more different. And I thought, wow, people who went to Howard are going to be like putting their hands on their hip, pointing their fingers at me like, girl, who do you think you are? But I had a really good mentor who uh, did a sensitivity read of the House of Eve because it was literally up to almost one of the last drafts that I had Howard fictionalized. And I called it something else. I called it Bowser University. And she lives. Yeah, she lives in Maryland and has a really good relationship with Howard University. And she said, Sadiqa, you're being foolish. She was like, everybody's gonna know that you're talking about Howard University. She was like, you're not fooling anyone and you're not saying anything that's bad about the school. So she said, you will do yourself a disservice by not calling it Howard. And so I, I changed it. But you know, I had already heard that from my agent and my editor. You know, you gotta hear it from the right person sometimes because people have had already said it and I was just like, eh. They don't know what they're talking about. But when she said it, I thought, okay, I better I better change it. And I'm really glad that I did. That is really interesting. Tell me more about sensitivity readers. And if you have to do that from a, I mean, it sounds like your family who was alive in the 50s proved really invaluable for some of those historical, you know, they were there on the ground during those years details. Did you have readers for other specific things about the novel aside from how? Well, for that, for the House of Eve, Marita sort of served. She's a little bit older, and so she's a little. She's about my parents' age, probably, but she's a writer, so it's a little bit different to have her look at it. She's a writer. She's a teacher, and so I knew that she would see what I did, or wh- where I may have gone wrong, or what I've left out, or if I was not sensitive to something that needed to be 
said in a certain way. And so she sort of went through it. When I was writing Yellow Wife, we had a African-American doc, she was getting her doctorate at Princeton University in African-American studies. And so we had her go through Yellow Wife to make sure that all my word choices were appropriate and correct and made sense for that time period. So I do think for historical fiction, it is good to have some other eyes, professional look at it to make sure that you're saying what you need to say and that your book re- reads authentic and true. I'm thinking back to the the beginning of the interview and you talking about um, having a training in acting and theater. And I was talking about how cinematic the, the books feel. And then I started thinking about dialogue because your dialogue is so wonderful. And these characters, you would not mistake them from each other. You would never mistake a line Ruby says from a line Eleanor says from a line Aunt Marie says. And I was wondering if if you feel like that theater training is useful in your mastery of dialogue and anything you can say about making characters sound distinct from each other and kind of how you make it sound so authentic. I think dialogue is that subject that actors and writers both share. And I remember when I was a theater arts major in college, it was like, go out to restaurants and eavesdrop, eavesdrop, listen to the way people speak so that you could you could speak like that when you are acting out a scene. And then I take creative writing class and they're like, for dialogue, go to restaurants, <laughs> eavesdrop, eavesdrop, because you want to make people sound as authentic as possible. And so I think the combination has made me um, very sensitive to dialogue. I also like getting it right. So I hear my characters in my head. I hear their voices. I know when I'm not saying what they're trying to say. And that's what drafts are good for, right? Because the first time it may fall sort of flat. But then by the second or the third time, it's like, oh, okay, we're in a rhythm together. My job as the, you know, I see myself a lot as the conduit, as the typist. My job is to get down what they say and to get it down as close as possible so that it reads authentic and true. So dialogue is one of those things that I think I've had a natural ability to do because of my, yes, to answer your question, yes, my theater background definitely helps. Um, And also because I was told in both professions that I have to be a good eavesdropper. And so I'm the person who we may be out to dinner and you'll look at me and you know I'm not listening to you because my my ear is sort of cocked to the table next to me because I'm eavesdropping on the 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 table next to me. And I'm 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 listening to what they're saying and how they're saying it. And I'm thinking I'm storing it away for later. Although this book and the Yellow Wife would be such an additional challenge because not only are they set in the past and really Yellow Wife, I mean the idioms and all those things are so different. You know, 150 years ago and 70 years ago, but also. The, as we mentioned, the book is so class focused and so every class has their way, right, of talking yeah. to each other and, and their own, you know, hoity-toity country club yeah. upper class. For yeah. Yellow Wife, I made a very conscious decision to have Phoebe not speak in contractions. So everybody else in the story could speak in contractions, but not Phoebe no matter how painful it was for me to write these words all the way out, (laughs) you know, I wouldn't, I had to write, I would not, you know, because I wanted to show that she was 
educate, even though she was an enslaved woman, she had been educated. And so to separate her from some of the enslaved people who sort of worked underneath her, you always knew when Phoebe was speaking because she never used contractions and she didn't speak in any sort of slang whereas, you know, some of them would drop a G, you know, or at the end of a word. And so I was very consistent about that so that you knew who was speaking. Who was the most difficult in this book in that regard, you know, because I, I talk to some writers who say characters who are biographically aligned to them are sometimes the most difficult to write about and characters who are so wildly different from them are a little bit easier. Was there a mm. character in here that was more or less accessible to you or somebody who really, <laughs> you're like, how do you speak? I think, uh, well, I would say Ruby was the easiest. She was the one who I could just feel I knew where she was going. I mean, she was just easy. It was a joy. She was easy and she was a joy. You know, for for Yellow Wife, I would, would say the jailer was the hardest for me um, to get in. But for the House of Eve, I don't remember any character really standing out as shallow where I had to keep reworking it. Because, and that's happened in, my previous books, where it's like, uh uh, this character is one dimensional, nobody's going to believe it, you know. But for the House of Eve, I, I feel like all of the characters sort of evolved in a really nice way that I, I can't remember feeling like, ooh, I don't have it. Like, I got to keep working it. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because there are some mothers in here that, you know, you just want to walk into the book and strangle them. And yet I had empathy for them. I kind of understand yeah. where they came from. And, you know, I'm like, you're blowing it, but I get why you're doing it. So yeah, mm -hmm. they, they all felt really fully realized. You had a writing technique that I love that I've actually started trying to incorporate since we talked the last time, which is that when you sit down to write, you just start talking to your characters like they're, you know, an old friend. You're like, what have you been up to? And what's, mm -hmm. you know, what's, what's going on in your world? And I love it. Maybe you could talk a little bit about doing that, but I just love that unlocking them so that you don't feel like there's something springing out of your head. You feel like they're already a fully realized human being and you're just catching up with them like you would with a girlfriend. That's it. Because we're carrying them around, particularly when you're working, like even now, this new novel that I have in my head, you know, I've made a relationship with these characters. The, my last go round of thinking like, okay, we're going to write this book. I'm not quite sure how it's going to get done, but I know who you are. You, you know what I'm doing. And so we have a relationship now. We have a contract. So when, and it's been weeks, I was supposed to write today and shame on me. I have not written one single word. Um, but when I do tomorrow, we'll say tomorrow, I'll get to it. When <laughs> I write tomorrow, I'm going to say, you know, hey, Sophia, how, how are you? What have you been up to? And even just saying that to you out loud, I just got a flash of her face across my eyes. I just got to like that little feeling of she's like right there waiting to be in conversation with me. She's just waiting for me to call her out to play. So she's been waiting. And sometimes when they come, they're tapping their foot like, where have you been? Like, I've been waiting for you. Like, I want you to tell this story. So for me, it's a matter of we we have a relationship. We have a plan. I know I haven't been here to sort of facilitate it, but I'm back now. So catch me up. What you been doing? <laughs> I love that. I love that. 
And do you write in the same place every day where you're surrounded by in your office by, you know, Sophia's face and what all these people look like? Do you try to stay there? Uh, I, okay. So if I had been in my office this morning, I probably would have written, but I took my computer down to the kitchen and the kitchen is more like business, the business of being an author. And my office is more like the creator, like the creative aspect of being an author. And so I, I do need to be in a certain space, you know, my office, particularly when I'm starting something new, I need to be in my office. So that is, yes, that is a yes. But then once I get going, what I'll do is I, and I started this uh, with the house of ease, I'll take, you know, four or five days or a week out of a month and I'll go someplace where it's like just me and my characters and I'll just write. I don't have to think about, you know, the kids' schedule or what's for dinner. I could fully immerse myself in their wants and their needs. And I tend to get a good amount of the story done by doing that. And then when I come back, we have a rhythm so I can continue working on them. So it's about finding that. that rhythm. Yeah, it's about finding that rhythm. And it's also about developing the muscle. So since I haven't been writing for a few weeks, I'm not gonna jump in and say I'm writing five hours today because all that's gonna do is frustrate me. Right. You don't, you don't go to the gym and say, first day in, I'm lifting 20 pound dumbbells. Absolutely not. You go in and you get those three or five pound weights and you you do a little something and you feel good about yourself and you leave. Then yes. the next day you come back, you know. And so I look at it the same way uh, when I start writing. And I have to be gentle with myself and I have to sort of also coax myself to sit and write and engage and and go on this journey. And I really like that idea of carving out a space in the house for creativity versus a space in the house for business, because I think that's a kind of a trigger to your brain. Like, okay, now I'm in this alternate universe world where, you know, my checking account doesn't exist. And, mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. you know, you wouldn't go to your bathroom to bake a, bake a cake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I, re- I know that about myself. And so I sort of knew I was like, I was fooling myself this morning saying, today is the day I'm going to write because I sat right at the kitchen table where I do all the business of being Sadiqa Johnson. So nothing happened. So tomorrow, wish me luck. (laughs) Is there advice that you can leave us with? Or, you know, I'm I'm picturing you sitting in the back of these limos with all these famous authors and and braining their drain and wanting to do that with you, which we have been doing for the last hour, but any advice that they gave you back in the day that, that stuck with you or advice you can leave us with? I love all this resilience, grit, determination stuff, but is there other, are there other things that have served you well? I think you have to just trust the process and not give up. I think writing is not for the faint of heart. I don't think it's not, it's not, easy. But one of the things my dad said to me, my son's a computer science major. And I was like, dad, he is suffering. Oh my gosh. And my dad was like, because anything worth having is not going to come easy breezy. Like you gotta, you gotta put the work in. Right. And so even when it's hard, you gotta put the work in, even when you don't feel like it, even when, you know, you just don't want to do it. You, you have to commit to writing. Writers have to write, whether it's 10 minutes a day, whether it's 30 minutes a day, whether it's five hours a day, we have to write, we have to be creative. And so I always tell my students, keep your butt in the seat, 
make a commitment to yourself, put your writing on your calendar the same way you would a dental appointment. That's what I did today. I just didn't, I didn't follow the calendar, but I had it on the calendar that I was supposed to write today. So definitely make an appointment for yourself and show up for your writing. I feel like I derailed you and now I feel really guilty, but I'm so glad we got to do this anyway. But oh, yeah. Oh no, it wasn't you. You were on my calendar too. You, 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 you. <laughs> but no, it was not you at all. It was me not, it was me just not ready to commit. That's all, Marie. I like, I want to commit. And it's like, I know the first day I get in the saddle, I'm back. But it's like that first day, just just doing it, you know, it's resistance. So, yeah. It's just like the gym. It's so much resistance. And I, yeah, is. I feel it. Yeah. It no, is. It's... And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm a human, I'm human, just like all of the writers out there in the universe that are listening to us. I'm having a hard time too. So I'm speaking from experience, not necessarily like preachy preachy, but like I go through it too. And I'm going through it right now. Well, and I'm picturing you out on the street corner in the hot, humid, northeastern summers, hawking your book. And then I'm picturing reading you on the New York Times bestseller list. Oh, yeah. One <laughs> equals the other, you know, eventually. So I love it. I love your story. I love your books and I love your personal story. I love all your stories. This, I'm so glad we got to do this again. And tell us where we can find you so people can learn more about you. I know you have a, a great website, which I think is just your name, Sadiqa Johnson. Yes. Yes. It's, um, and my husband does my website. So I will tell him you said that. You can get it. He just changed it. You can get it Sadiqa.net or you can get it SadiquaJohnson.net. Either way, um, I am on Instagram, Sadiqa says. I'm also on Twitter, Sadiqa says, and you could find me on Facebook. But I, I've been spending way more time on Instagram. I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm liking Instagram. It's kind of entertaining and fun. So that's probably the the best place to find me is on Instagram. It's so funny. The more authors I talk to lately, everybody everybody says that they're like, we're all on Instagram. I think people are either migrating off of Twitter or yeah, but people are loving Instagram. So yes, yeah. Sadiqa says we'll look for you there. Yeah, Sadiqa says on IG. Excellent. Sadiqa Johnson, congratulations on all of it. I can't wait for the new one. Oh, me either. Me either. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Sadiqa Johnson. The book is The House of Eve. It's out and available now and published by Simon & Schuster. In addition to our Patreon page, you can also visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com, two R's in Marie. You can always subscribe to the podcast at Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mikejabi.com. That's all the time we've got for today. Tune in next week, and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.